of child training. And it may seem paradoxical at first, but I submit to you that second only to the importance of your relationship with the Lord, the health of your marriage will be somewhat determinative um, with respect to how healthy the child training is in your home. So I want to pray, and then I'm going to, we're going to spend a little bit of time in Genesis 1 and 2, and then we'll make some application from that. Let's, let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your faithfulness. We're grateful that you have given us your word. So we are not trying to sort out or discover things all on our own but you have given us a certain, sufficient, and infallible guide to all saving knowledge and understanding. And I pray that your word, that your spirit, would shape our thinking. We pray that by your grace and by your power that we would would prioritize the things that you prioritize. That we would be conformed to your image and not to our own ideas or our own expectations. We ask for your help in these things. I pray for, uh, physically, for the strength to, to, to listen, to speak, to encourage one another in these things in this next hour. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, I don't know if you know this or really how much this is kind of pressed in or weighed in upon you, but historically speaking, we live in an unprecedented child-centered age. We, we live in an age, and particularly in our Western culture, that at least on paper is obsessed with the wants and needs of children. Some of that is a good thing. When we compare to ages past, when even the very lives of children were not valued well, the safety of children, as I think about, you know, uh, eight-year-olds as chimney sweeps and facing all kinds of danger and, and those kinds of things. I'm thankful that we have a greater awareness and a greater desire culturally to protect children. But at the same time, many homes, and even sadly many Christian homes, are marked by the fact that children are running the joint, not the parents. And so as we think about that, we, we want to think about how does that reality, that which is culturally familiar to us, how does that shape our thinking? Even indirectly, inadvertently. How is it that we are being conformed to the world rather than the Scriptures and the mind of Christ? And so the question is, what relationship should be prioritized above all others in a Christian home? And the answer is the marriage. But you probably know people, I know people, perhaps you've been people, that have had things sort of inverted, where their relationship with children is primary. It's of first importance, rather than the relationship between the husband and the wife. And the laboring together to train and disciple our children, this isn't news to you, but it can cause a strain on a marriage, right? 
the, the ordinary, just, just ordinary challenges of feeding and clothing and caring for and nursing back to health and training and discipling and correcting, it can wear you out. It's stressful, both physically, emotionally, spiritually. How can a husband and wife labor together in unity for the training and the discipleship of their children? I want to look together at Genesis 1 and 2, and I'm, I'm going to, this is going to be a, a sort of a flyover of certain things. But I want to ask, we're starting Genesis 2. <clears throat> In verse 18, and some of you who are, are, have been around a while, you've, you've heard me walk through some of this material before, but I want, to, I want to emphasize some things that I hope will help us to think through kind of the next sequence. In chapter 2 of Genesis, beginning at verse 15, we read this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him, or suitable, or meet for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its flesh or its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let me ask you a question, and this is, I'm not asking this only rhetorically, I'm asking for actual answers here. In verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Why, what answer would you give to the question, if somebody asked you, why was it not good for Adam to be alone? What's the answer to that? Or what, are, what is an answer to that? Yeah. Yes. The purpose that God intended for Adam was not complete in and of itself with Adam. How else might you answer that? Or how else might you have heard that, that question answered? Why was it not good for Adam to be alone? 
usually the answer is something like this. Adam was relationally lonely, and he needed a companion. It's not an entirely wrong answer, but it's not a sufficient answer. If we turn back to Genesis 1, and the relationship between Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 1 is the, the overarching summary of creation, and Genesis 2, if you will, zooms in on a certain aspect of day 6 in which Adam is made. So we all have the, you know, the GPS maps and stuff on our phone. We're used to the whole pinch and zoom thing. So chapter 2 is pinched and zoomed on day 6. Okay. So the question before us is, why was it not good? Or maybe the better question to ask is this, for whom was it not good that Adam was alone? our knee-jerk reaction is to say, well, it's not good for Adam, right? But hold on to that answer. Let's just kind of work with the theory that that's our answer. It's not good for Adam. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Correct. All that God had intended. But let's just, for our working answer, let's just say it's not good for Adam. Well, let's go to Genesis 1. One of the things that we're going to see in Genesis 1 and 2 is a pattern. Day 1, day 2, God says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And in Hebrew literature, the repetition is really important. But then all of a sudden you get to the passage that we read earlier in verse 18 of chapter 2. It's good, it's good, it's good, and then all of a sudden, not good. Ah, the pattern's broken. That should immediately arrest our attention. That why is it not good? So look back to day one, verse 4 of Genesis 1. And God saw that the light was good. Was good for whom? Adam wasn't there yet. It's good for the, whatever God's purpose is in the light, it was good for that purpose. Right? Look down at day 2, verse 10. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas, and God saw that it was good. Oh, well, we might argue it was good for the fishes, but they weren't there yet. Just water. Same with day 3. Trees bearing fruit in which their seed, each according to its kind, verse 12, and God saw that it was good. Day four, you see this in verse 18. He put a greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. Verse 18, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. Day five, we have winged, we have winged birds. We have this, the creatures in the sea. God made all of them according to their kind, and God saw that it was good. Good for whom? We're still, we're still in the same thing. Whatever God's plans and purposes are, this was objectively, not subjectively good. Now for Adam to have a companion, certainly there was a subjective good to have someone to accompany him. But beyond that subjective feeling of good, which all of us have with a companion, especially a wife or a husband, but this is more than that. And then we see day six, 
God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, verse 25, the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. So we have this summary statement made on each consecutive day, one through six. It was good, 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 and then all of a sudden it is not good. And so to be consistent on day one when the light was made and God said for his own purposes and glory, this is objectively good, then we get to day six, day six B, the latter half of that day, when God has already brought all the beasts of the field to Adam. And Adam has as an expression of his dominion over them, has put a name on every creature that God brought before him. But Adam also sees in all of those creatures the dissimilarity to himself. God calls, and, and God says to this situation, it's not good. It is not good according to God's creative, and then we're going to see in chapter 3, there's already a hint, it's also not good for God's redemptive purposes both his creative purposes and his redemptive purposes. And there's a hint, I think, in chapter 3, verse 16. After Adam and Eve had rebelled, God says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. I'm sorry, back up to verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. If Adam didn't have a wife, where would Adam's redeemer have come from? There's a redemptive purpose in this as well. So we have an overarching purpose of marriage. Something in the mind of God that we don't yet fully know in Genesis 1 and 2. We're just given that God has made marriage. And God says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Incidentally, I think verse 25 is very important. I think it's instructive. The very last word on human beings, the very last word on Adam and Eve before they fell, was a commendation of their nakedness, and they were unashamed. I think that's instructive. Then what's the very first thing they do after they've sinned? They seek to cover their... Why didn't they cover their ears? It's by hearing the serpent's temptation that they succumbed. Why didn't they cover their eyes? It was the, it was the, it was the, the fruit was pleasing to the eyes. Why didn't they cover their hands? So they couldn't grab hold of the fruit anymore. And be tempted that they didn't. They covered their nakedness. But I think it tells us something about, number one, the innocency, originally, of this nakedness, not only physically, but emotionally, spiritually, all of it, in, in marriage, the intimacy that was there, unhindered. And then the contrast, and the very first thing that was corrupted was their sexuality. And they were clothed now, not with um, a lack of shame, they were clothed with shame as a consequence of their sin. And I think that's, that's beyond the scope of the, the lesson today, but I think there's something that's important for us to meditate upon, especially as married folks, with respect to this kind of, of intimacy that was there and then was corrupted in the fall. In our, in our confession of faith, in chapter 25, the chapter on marriage, we have both a definition of marriage, but also a purpose statement. If you have a copy of the, of the confession 
You can turn to it in chapter 25. There's also the Blue Trinity hymnals have that in the back. We have a definition, first of all, for marriage in paragraph one. It's very short, but oh man, isn't this helpful in our day? Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Neither is it lawful for any man to have more than one wife, nor for any woman to have more than one husband at the same time. That's the definition and and, uh, defining of the parties and terms of marriage. But then paragraph 2 says this, marriage was ordained for. Well, that's a purpose kind of statement. And we're going to find a threefold purpose. Remember, the overarching purpose is the redemptive and creative plans of God. Here we have three. This is consistent with all of the Reformed confessions. Marriage was ordained for, number one, the mutual help of husband and wife. Number two, for the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue, childbearing. And three, for the preventing of uncleanness, to prevent sexual immorality. Notice that raising children is only one of three different purposes articulated for marriage. It is a purpose of marriage, but it isn't the purpose of marriage. It isn't the only purpose of marriage. What does that mean? Well, for most of us, you're going to have children in your home for a fixed amount of time, right? Not forever. Your marriage will likely last far longer or ought to last far longer than the process of raising your children. Which means the marriage must be, the marriage as a whole must be the priority, not only the raising of children. Now, these these three purposes laid out in our confession, one, the first one is, and I like the way it's phrased, the mutual help of husband and wife. This is more than merely companionship. This is more than merely having a buddy, or, or a uh, helper, or someone to enjoy the experiences of life. I mean, those are, that's a wonderful thing to have someone to enjoy the sunset together, or to, to enjoy the same kinds of hobbies, or enjoy different aspects of, of life together, to enjoy the raising of children and establishing a home. But mutual help is more comprehensive than that. There are redemptive undertones here. A husband has the opportunity to come alongside his wife, encourage her faith, encourage her holiness, encourage her obedience to Christ, and encourage her with the gospel promises when she has stumbled and fallen short of that. And a wife has the opportunity to help her husband to be faithful to Christ, to remember his gospel promises, to remember his commands, to encourage her husband when he has fallen short of that, to encourage him with the gospel. There is a mutual help. So let's think about this under just three very, and I'm going to spend just a a, a brief amount of time, and this this lesson, we had to do some intro work here in Genesis 1 and 2, but the lesson today is far more an exhortation than it is instruction. The, the, The emphasis in what I want to present to you today is more for the purpose of exhortation, to urge, encourage, exhort you to a priority of your marriage, even above your children, than it is to instruct um, and and do an exegesis of a particular text. 
But let's think first of all about the nature of the priority of marriage. In Mark chapter 10, and we will get to this in several weeks from now in our, in our sermon series on Mark. But in Mark chapter 10... we have this scene where Pharisees come to Jesus and they're, they're trying to test him. They're trying to trip him up. And they ask about the very thorny issue of divorce. And Jesus answers them, this is in verse 3, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Now, what is Jesus referencing here? Well, clearly, Genesis 1 and 2. In fact, now he quotes it. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, look what Jesus adds to this. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together let not man separate. In the old King James, let not man put asunder. Growing an affinity for some of the older language. But Jesus has already asserted himself as the true lawgiver. And what he's saying is, we, as individual Christians, as human beings, do not have the, the authority. We do not possess the authority to redefine marriage. Now, hopefully, as conservative, reformed, evangelical Christians, all of us would easily say, amen. We are opposed to homosexual marriage. We're opposed to polyamory and all these other iterations. We're opposed to that. But are we also opposed to any other thing that would undermine the health and welfare of our marriages? Including even the little ones that live in our homes. And, and I'm not talking about something that's mutually exclusive. I'm not saying go sell your kids or go leave them somewhere. Um, but this is, a, this is a, an attitude of the heart and an orientation of our minds, isn't it? Because in the ordinary daily grind of life in a home, have you ever heard the phrase tyranny of the urgent? Well, with children, it's a, it's a whole other high, high level of tyranny, isn't it? Because their needs are, 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 are constant. And, and when they're very young, their needs are exhaustive. They're comprehensive. They're depending upon you for everything. I mean, you do almost everything but breathe for them. You have to do everything else. And sometimes when they got colds, you feel like you're going to do that. You're having to suck stuff out and, and, you know, all these other things. So they are utterly dependent. And what happens? We are tempted not to prioritize what God says is the priority. Our children is only one of the purposes of marriage. Jesus said, what God has joined together, let not man separate. I commend to you, it's a book that I've used, I don't know how many times now, through pre-marriage counseling, through other marriage counseling. Uh, Christopher Ash has, a, it's a relatively short book, a couple hundred pages, called um, Married for God. And he, he wor it's, it's not a, a nuts and bolts, X's and O's kind of marriage book. There are others out there for that. This is the theology of marriage. 
laying a groundwork. What do we believe as husband and wife about the institution, the purpose, the joy, the glory of marriage? And in this book, one of the comments he makes is, we can destroy God's building project of marriage, but if we do, we have God against us. See, he's, not, he's, he's actually pushing back against this idea that marriage is inherently indissoluble. That, you know, man and woman, they stand before the, the minister, they stand before the judge, they repeat their vows, and at that point, God has joined them together. Now it's like a well that can't be broken. He's not saying that. He's saying it can be broken. The covenant can be broken. But if you do, you have God against you. He goes on. Jesus says that we must not pull apart what God has joined together. This is not the unforgivable sin, but it is a very serious sin. Those who are the active agents in breaking a marriage need to repent and ask for their forgiveness that is available only in the Lord Jesus Christ. This means that neither husband nor wife must tear their marriage apart. Neither of them is to put their career, comfort, personal fulfillment, or own desires ahead of their marriage. If they do, they have God against them. Instead, we must do all we can to nourish and build up our marriages because they are unions made by God. And we could add to that, couldn't we? If we allow our children to come between a husband and a wife. If we allow the necessary care for our kids to capture our hearts in such a way that they become our primary place of intimacy and affection rather than the husband and wife. Now, those of you who are parents, you have a natural love and affection for your children. That is good. It's God-given. But can you see how the temptation can come, that that can become inordinate? Could be that that could come to the neglect of even weightier priorities. Brothers and sisters, I, I mean, I know of three marriages just this last year. Conservative, homeschooling, even went to a Reformed Baptist church at one point or another. Homeschool families, these marriages have failed. This is not hypothetical. And, and I don't want to be chicken little. I don't want to be alarmist. That's not the, the, the point at all. But we have to take the things of God seriously. There are consequences when we neglect those things that God has given to us. When God says, this is what I want you to focus on, and we don't do that. Well, there are consequences for that. Uh, you see this even in your own home sometimes, your own sons and daughters, when you say, I want you to focus on this particular thing. And then a child doesn't do that. And then they get burned on the stove because they didn't follow the instructions, or they... They have some other injury or something happens because they didn't follow your instructions. Like, I, I tried to tell you. This is the way it should have worked, and you didn't do that. And in a similar way, God has said to us that what God has joined together, we are not to separate. We are not to undermine that. One of the things that all three of these particular families had in common is none of them were... were, were vitally active in a healthier, solid church. There is a community aspect to this as well. We need one another. We need to remind one another. We need to exhort one another. We need to encourage each other. And 
I'm not a prophet. I'm not a son of a prophet. But I don't think you have to be to see that marriage as an institution is under attack from almost every single direction we can imagine. In the civil sphere, civil sphere, I mean, the civil magistrate is attacking marriage. Even our tax code undermines it. Socially, culturally, there are even those who, those of us who, who want faithful homes and faithful marriages, don't we feel the pressures? Don't we feel that tension from time to time? Don't we feel the fact that our, our jobs take us here and there, our, our affections go here and there, and, and our, our marriages are facing all kinds of difficulties? And so we as God's people must seek to be proactive in that. And I think that brings us to the second, what I want to cover in the second place, not only the priority of marriage, but, but not prioritizing our marriage as some act of drudgery or some commitment that we've made, well, okay, I signed my name, now I'm just stuck with this. But cultivating a joy, a delight in our marriages. That doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't happen without work. It doesn't happen without shared commitment. It doesn't happen without time. It doesn't happen without other resources being invested in marriage, even money. To make sure that we have, as husband and wife, the time, the opportunity to spend together. In Ephesians 5, one of the seminal texts on marriage, and again, this is not going to be an exegesis of the text, but we have here a glorious picture we have, of course, the, the, the instruction from Paul, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Then he says to husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Literally, he betrayed himself. It's the exact same phrase used in the Garden of Gethsemane when they came, when the soldiers and all the mob came and they're looking for Jesus, and he said, I'm he. And the text, and they all fell down. John says they all, all the soldiers fell down. And I guess when they got back up, they went about the business of arresting Jesus, and the text tells us he gave himself over to them. Literally, he betrayed himself. I mean, he just said, I'm, I'm he, and they all fell down. So it wasn't a matter of they, they, they had overwhelming forces, and he was forced to surrender. He willingly gave himself up. Well, that's the picture here to a husband. He willingly betrays his own interests, his own desires, for the sake of his wife. Verse 27, here's another purpose clause, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, this is Christ, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she, the church, might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated or his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of the body. And here again, Paul's quoting the same text. You think this text is important? Jesus quotes it, Paul quotes it. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now listen to what Paul says. This mystery is profound. It's profound. And it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see 
that she respects her own husband. Paul says this is a profundity. This is a profound thought. And what Paul's doing, when he uses this language of mystery, he's not saying, contrary to the, you know, the jokes that go around, he's not saying, men, you'll never figure out that mysterious creature. You'll never figure out that woman. He's not talking about the, 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 the intricacies or the difficulties of, of a relationship. When Paul uses the term mystery, he's talking about something that was previously veiled under the Old Covenant, but now in the New has been unveiled. And so the way I, I imagine this, maybe you've been to one of these, you know, an art gallery or some you know, monument being unveiled, and you have this big, here's this big, something under the big black veil, right? And at the appointed time, someone will pull the veil off, and everybody goes, ooh, ah, you know, here's the, here's the, the marble statue, or here's the, 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 the bronze bust, or whatever it is. Something that was previously hidden has now been revealed. And this is what Paul's doing with respect to marriage. He's saying now in Christ, let's pull the veil off, and let's see that all along, all the way back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, God had designed marriage to be a living, breathing, 3D picture of Christ and the church. That was veiled. They didn't see that under the Old Covenant. doesn't mean it wasn't there. They just didn't see it. Now that's been revealed in Christ. So what are the implications for us as God's people? We ought to cultivate a joy and a delight in the marriage relationship itself. It's not in the bearing of children that we image Christ. It's not in, in, in the, the raising of children. Even that's a good thing and we ought to pursue it, but it is not in that activity that Christ and His church are imaged it's in the marriage union itself the sacrificial love of a husband toward his wife the sweet spirited gentle submissive nature of a wife towards her husband it's in that 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 bi-directional relationship between christ and his church is imaged now, one of the things, and you may or may not be aware of this, but one of the things is we, we think about the Reformation. We are a Reformed church, and obviously there were some significant things that were Reformed in the Reformation, right? Hence its name. And of course, Doctrine 1A, the top on the list, was the Doctrine of Justification. How is it that a man is reconciled to God? Well, Rome had one answer that Martin Luther and others began to see from the Scriptures, that's not what God's Word says. And so a lot of the focus on the Reformation, and rightly so, is on the doctrine of justification. We can see a kind of a subordinate or a corollary doctrine, the doctrine of liberty of conscience. But do you know that how, how extensive was the Reformation of the doctrine of marriage? Matthew? Yes, exactly. It, it, is, it is only for procreation, and there were theological reasons for that, but there are also negative theological implications of that. So here, for example, this is Martin Luther, a quote from Martin Luther. This is from his lectures on Genesis. 
When I was a boy, says Luther, marriage was considered so infamous on account of impious and impure celibacy that I thought I could not think about married life without sin. For all were convinced that if anyone wished to live a life holy and acceptable to God, he must never become a spouse, but must live a celibate life and take the vow of celibacy. This is why many men who had married became monks or contemptible priests after the death of their wives. See, there was, there was this underlying suspicion that infected their understanding of marriage that it was kind of a necessary evil. That children were the only good thing to come out of a marriage, but even it required sin to get the children. In fact, listen to this. One historian makes this comment about the medieval view of chastity. And he's going to quote from a catechism from 1494. Listen to this. The clergy of the Middle Ages were obsessed with chastity and sexual purity. Augustine portrayed sexual intercourse in paradise as occurring without lust and emotion. A vernacular catechism from 1494 elaborates the third deadly sin, which is impurity, under the title, How the Laity Sin in the Marital Duty. How's that for a catechism question? According to the 1494 Catechism, the laity sins sexually in marriage by, among other things, having sex for the sheer joy of it, rather than for the reasons God has commanded, namely, to escape the sin of concupiscence and to populate the earth. So in other words, joy in marriage for its own sake, particularly in the marriage bed, was considered sin. And so it's not hard to begin to trace out from there and see why in many of the medieval marriages there was really no emphasis on affection, companionship, shared joy. It was a business arrangement. And it was a way lawfully to produce children, but only barely lawfully. In fact, the act of procreation itself was suspect at best. Now, the Reformers pushed back from the Scriptures. And, and it's important for us, I think, here as husbands and wives, as parents, to be an example here. Not only for the health of our own marriage, for our own sake, and that's, that's good, but our young ones growing up in our home, what, when they leave our home, what is their view of marriage? Is it a business deal? Is it something they just, you know, by, by grit and perseverance alone endured? Or do our children leave our home with a Christ-oriented, joyful view of marriage and the marriage relationship? Do they look to mom and dad and say, you know, they like each other. In fact, somewhat sometimes it makes me a little uncomfortable. They like each other a little too much. But what a blessing that is to our kids. 
to see that kind of security. I remember as a, as a teenager seeing my, my parents cuddled up on the couch or something, and, you know, it was kind of a, I would make a big deal out of it as a kid, pop, you know, you know. But secretly, I was comforted. Secretly, I was encouraged. My parents had an affection for each other. And, and I was thankful. I didn't grow up in a, in, a, in a Christian home, but I was thankful that in, in, a, in an informal way, I was catechized, if I could say it that way, into prioritizing a marriage. I remember my own mom sitting me down. Your dad and I are going away for the weekend. We need to. This is good for you too. This is good for all of us. And that was left a favorable impression on me. I'm thankful that as I was coming into the ministry, that my, my mentor made much of the fact that you need to get time to invest in your marriage. You need to have time, whether that's regular date nights, whether that's getting away for a weekend, you need to invest and have the time to do that. So as I mentioned, I, I want this to be as much exhortation as instruction. So you as parents who are at various stages of the grind of parenting, some with little ones, some with not so little little ones anymore, make time to prioritize your marriage. Don't neglect each other. Pour into each other. Encourage one another. Feed each other. For your own sake, but also, and this will feel paradoxical, it will even feel selfish sometimes, to prioritize your marriage is good for your kids too. It almost feels like addition by subtraction. I have less time with my kids because I'm spending with my husband. I have less time with my kids because I'm spending with my wife, and they actually are better off for it. This brings us to the last point, and again, by way of exhortation. The exhortation is going to take a more deliberately male focus here. My brothers, you married men. This, there is a necessity of you leading in these things, of me leading in my home in these things. Not only in the, in the, in the raising and training of your children, and, and we're over the next three sessions, we, we hope, I hope to look at some kind of some specifics for, broadly speaking, three different age groups and some, some strategies for, for parenting. But in all of those things, brothers, it is not your responsibility alone, but it is your responsibility to a weightier degree, according to the Scriptures. In each of the cases where Paul speaks directly to parents, Colossians 3, for example, Ephesians 6, he always begins with fathers. Fathers, instruct your children. Again, not because he's neglecting the duty of a mother, but Paul recognizes from the Scriptures and from natural revelation as well, that if dad's not involved, if dad's not prioritizing these things, if mom's having to carry the freight on her own with respect to training and discipline and, and all these other things, or even the health of the marriage, she's going to struggle a lot, isn't she? If we think back to that purpose of marriage of mutual help, mutual encouragement, mutual help, that companionship, 
that will be far healthier if, if we as husbands are taking the lead, taking the initiative. Um, that might even mean kidnapping your wife at some point. Just, just a thought. It might. It might mean just hypothetically packing her bag and making arrangements for the kids and she doesn't even know where you're going until it's too late to escape. Hypothetically. Um, but brothers, it, it is. There, there, God has wired our, our wives as nurturers. Wired them to care for the, for the, for the children in ways that sometimes we, are, we stand in awe Wow, that's amazing. Other times we're perplexed because we, we don't understand sometimes the nature of those connections. And sometimes it's helpful for us as a husband. It'll, it'll even feel selfish sometimes as a husband to say, you know what, I need you. I need your time. I need your attention. Not in a childish way, guys. <laughs> we're all capable of that kind of pettiness, right? But in a God-honoring way. To say, I... I I need us as husband and wife. We need time together. In 1 Peter 3, Peter is working through what it's like to live under persecution, uh, under uh, threats against your faith. He's dealt with how to to deal with an unjust civil magistrate. He's going to deal with how to deal with an unjust um, master as a slave. He deals with wives. What happens when your husband doesn't obey the word? Then he says to husbands, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding manner, giving honor to her as to the weaker vessel. And I think this ties into not only the necessity of our leadership as husbands and fathers, but the manner of that leadership. What do you suppose that Peter means when he says a wife is a weaker vessel? Some of you know my answer already, but what's the ordinary answer to that question? In what way is the wife the weaker vessel? Physically, she's is a general rule. <laughs> so physical strength. That's, that's often, because it's, it's an easy explanation, and it's not universally, but largely true, right? That a wife is physically weaker. Now, unfortunately, if you read some of the old dead guys, you will read that she is mentally weaker or emotionally weaker. Well, light of nature doesn't really agree with that. Um, in fact, most godly men look at the, the, the strength of their wives in various ways and, and are in awe of that. That she's able, has a capacity to endure things that, that really encourage you as a husband. So in what way? So I don't think Peter's giving a, a, a lecture in physiology or anatomy, or psychology. Matthew? Uh-huh, uh-huh.
I, I think there's a legitimate scriptural argument to go there and to say, because Paul would say in another place, for example, it was not Adam who was deceived, but Eve. So there are, and, and unfortunately, some of the older commentators make that connection and say, see, we're, she's, something about her constitution is weaker. But let me offer something else in, to you instead. And I think this makes the best use of the scriptural evidence as a whole, but also in 1 Peter 3. Her weakness is positional. Her weakness is positional. Now, all along, Peter has been exhorting his people. Submit to the, give honor to the king and all those who are in authority over you. Positionally, you're in a weak spot, but he doesn't tell the king to honor the subject because there's not a relationship of intimacy there. For, for the, the employer and, and an employee, for the master and a slave, there's not a place of intimacy. It's just do your job. But when it comes to a husband and wife, that is not the case. God has joined them together. They are of one flesh. And then he looks at the husband. It's almost like, guys, he puts his finger on our chest and says, buddy, you better honor her. The weakness that she has voluntarily placed herself in. I mean, guys, have you looked in the mirror recently? She agreed to marry you. Right? Could have married somebody else. Maybe she tried. I don't know. But uh, she married you. And, and because she married you and is seeking to obey the Scriptures, a godly woman who puts herself in a place of positional weakness, of vulnerability. Because let's be, let's be honest, guys. If we are foolish, if we are careless in the decisions that we make, in the way that we lead our homes, aren't our wives vulnerable to that? especially if they are godly ladies wanting to submit themselves to the Lord and their own husbands. But there's something else Peter does not say. Honor women as weaker vessels. He says, honor your wife as the weaker vessel. So he's not speaking ontologically about the constitution and nature of the female sex. He's talking about the relationship. So again, it's positional weakness. Now, why is that important? Because again, even in this area of, of child training more broadly, but more specifically, the priority of our marriage. Brothers, can I exhort you, as, as I exhort myself? Our, our wives are positionally weaker in this area. And because of the specific kinds of responsibilities that God has given to them as the primary nurturers. Sometimes you know, in the young ones, it's in a very physical sense. They're able to nurture physically in ways that, guys, we don't have the right equipment. So there, 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 there's, a, there's an attachment, there is a responsibility, there is a bond there that we as husbands need to take the lead in helping to step back at some point and say, okay, we, we have a season where the little ones have to be, as a matter of, of urgency, they, they take most of our time and our attention. But our marriage still has to be our priority. How can we get creative as a husband and wife? How can we carve out the time? How can we carve out the energy at the end of a long day or end of a long week? So brothers, I exhort you to think about 
that specifically. I'm going to close with one, one final thought from Christopher Ashe. He says, it's very important to work lovingly at this intimacy at the heart of marriage. Sometimes, newly married spouses say to me that it feels a bit selfish to spend a good amount of relaxed time together since this is what they want to do anyway. But it is not selfish because by laying the foundations for a healthy intimacy and delight at the heart of marriage, they make it possible to grow a long-lived marriage where love will overflow outward to the blessing of many others in the years ahead. It may seem selfless to starve time together in order to serve more outside the marriage, but in the longer term, it is actually selfish because the rest of us will have to pick up the pieces of a struggling or broken marriage. If you are engaged, he's talking about engaged to be married, so far as it is in your power, plan to have plenty of good relaxed time together, especially in the first year. And after that, when, God willing, the foundations are laid, still guard those times together. Guard the fires of the heart so that the warmth of your love can spread outward to others. God wants our marriages to be echoes of his marriage to his covenant people. And this means that our marriages need a passionate heart of intimacy that overflows in blessings to others. This is the purpose of the marriage relationship. So again, it might feel like addition by subtraction. We need to focus on one another. We need to prioritize our relationship with each other. We need to pour into our our, our husbands, our wives, as a married couple. And sometimes that's going to mean the kids have to go to grandma's for, for a while, for a few hours or overnight. Or the kids have to go to bed early. Heaven forbid, they go to bed early so that mom and dad can have some intentional time together. Let us, as, as God's people, as we think about the, the, the labor, the work, the skill of training our children. Let's not neglect that matter of first importance. First of all, our relationship with the Lord, but second unto that is our relationship with, as, as a husband and wife. And, and trust that as we pour into that, not only will it have long-term positive effects, you know, you don't have that effect, that, that situation when the kids at some point, maybe, leave your home. And you kind of look over at each other and go, who are you? I seem to remember you way back in the cobwebs of my mind. I think I remember liking you, but I don't recall now. But I say that tongue-in-cheek, but also, sadly, there are, if you look at, um, and there have been, just secular longitudinal studies done and looking at, you all heard of the seven-year itch, there's kind of a spike in divorce rates around seven-year mark, kind of 14. But you know one of the, one of the big spikes is when the last kid leaves home. The last kid leaves home. And part of that is because the marriage wasn't nurtured. The children became central, whether anybody in, set out to do that or not. And so will we as God's people seek to prioritize what God has prioritized, when we seek to prioritize our marriages in the context of a covenant community, 
and believe that this will actually be a profit to our kids. Uh, I remember being at a homeschool, Texas homeschool convention years ago, it's probably a decade ago, and Bodie was doing one of those breakout sessions. Um, he was giving a, a, a lecture, he was talking about marriage at a homeschool conference. And I remember him in, in that, you know, his unique way saying, kind of painting this picture, he said, look, you need to go home, get a sitter, get, call grandma, whatever you need to do, and you sit the kids down, and look at all of them and say, mommy and daddy are going away. We're going to miss you, but not that much. <laughs> but at the same time, that actually in the long run will be an encouragement to our kids. It will create a, a, a degree of stability for them. Um, some of you have come from so-called broken homes where, family, where, where divorce ravaged a household. If not, you know people well. Um, I have a dear friend of mine whose parents have been married 40 years. And the marriage is in jeopardy. He's a grown man with his family. And is grieving over the thought that his parents were divorced. And it has a, a destabilizing effect even on adult kids with their own family. So I don't have to persuade you of that. You, you know that to be true. But the exhortation is, if these things are so, then let's prioritize our marriages. Let's, let's encourage one another in those things. And that might mean on a practical level, especially those of you with young kids. You can't just leave them. <laughs> as much as you'd like to leave a bowl of dog food, or you know, like a dog, just leave a food and an auto feeder, and now oh, they'll be fine for a couple days. We can't do that. Can we get creative? Even, especially in the context of a covenant community, is there a way to, I don't know, trade out? You keep mine for a night, I'll keep yours. Um, are there ways to be creative? If you don't have family nearby that can do that, um, your church family, for those with, you know, you're, you're, you're past that immediate stage, is there an option, an opportunity for you to be an encouragement to some of these younger married folks who, just looking at them, you know, they could use a night away and, and bless them in that way? Are there ways that we as a church, as a covenant community, to be an encouragement in tangible ways to each other, to protect, to build up, to fortify our marriages. I mean, I, I don't think this is hyperbole. We are at war when it comes to marriage. There's a full-blown, full assault on marriage. And if we don't believe that, if we don't operate as if that is true, we're putting ourselves in peril. And we're putting those around us in peril. So take that as, a, as an exhortation. Um, from one who has had the benefit of those exhorting me in previous times um, and, and can, can testify to the joy and the delight of making that, making our marriages a priority. I'll close there. If there's a couple, you know, any brief questions, I'll take that. If not, we'll, we'll save those to our next Zoom talk. We're, we're right at 435, so... Uh-huh.
Yeah, no, and I, I, I think there's, there's, a, there's a real threat, not only to, to reshaping existing marriages, but that will also be, again, I'm not a prophet, but that will be offered as a partial solution to the, those who have delayed marriage so long that it's not no longer a, much of a viable option. Well, here, here's, here's a celibate path for you that, that sounds good and holy. Well, let's pray, and then we'll close out this Sabbath day. Father, we are thankful that you have set yourself before us. You've offered yourself freely, wholly to us, in the person and work of your Son. And I pray that we will learn something about your covenant faithfulness that we will look to your word and to see how you have not only instituted marriage, but blessed it. That you have pronounced that the marriage bed is to be held in honor among all. Lord, will you forgive us of the ways that we have undermined our own marriages, that we have perhaps with careless tongues have, have spoken ill of, even in jest, of your institution. Will you help us to devote ourselves to our own husbands and wives and, and to find that a, a joyful calling to encourage, to delight, to help one another for your glory uh, for, for our own individual good, but also for the good of all those around us to whom those, those blessings flow out. As you cultivate the little gardens of our own marriage, may there be plenty of produce, in a sense, to share with those around us. May our neighbors, our, our family members, co-workers and others that know us see something unique, distinct in our homes and have an opportunity to be asked the reason for the hope that's in us and that we would have opportunity to testify of the wisdom and the goodness of our God. We praise you in Christ. Amen.